Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey guys, Hope everybody's doing well here on this Sunday in the United States of America. Andrew Gunling, J.J. Devaney, caught offside. Uh, as you probably would have figured, this podcast is going to be a little bit different today. Um, we will get to some of what's gone on in the quarterfinals. There's obviously a lot to talk about there. But the news from Friday night was just so shattering to the American soccer community, to the global soccer community to journalism in the United States, um, of the the sudden and stunning passing of Grant Wall um, while he was over in Qatar covering the quarterfinals. Um, and so we just wanted to come on before we get into any of the, the actual soccer and, and what's going on in the World Cup. Uh, we just, I don't know, we felt just like really compelled to kind of come on. I don't really have much of a, a rundown prepared or anything like that for this section of the podcast, but just to kind of share our thoughts on, um, boy, on just such a terrible tragedy and such a huge loss um, to, of course, the, the soccer community. And, his, you know, I think about his family, you know, people who were his friends. It's just, um, I don't know, JJ, I saw it Friday night and it was just like, like I was just saying to you off the air, like a friend showed me his phone that, that, had the U.S. soccer statement on it, and I was just like, what? No, no, no. That's, that doesn't, no, no, no. Like, it, it was like, it took like, I don't know, it took like five, ten seconds for it to be like, wait, that's, that's real? Like, that's a thing that actually happened? I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I still, I still can't believe it. It's, God, it's awful. I've been uh, numb the last couple of days thinking about it. Uh, it's, it makes no sense to me. I can't believe it's happened. I was in a bar with two Two of my friends from our seven-a-side team, and uh, you text me, but I put my phone away. I wasn't. We were just chatting, and uh, I turned it over and I saw it. And, um, and it's funny because I didn't have to explain. There's very few journalists I feel in the world, especially with the way modern media is, where you have to. You don't have to explain. You just say the name, like print mm -hmm. journalists. And they knew immediately, being soccer people who it wasn't, they're like, what? No, that's a mistake. That can't be right. And um, and it was horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And I, death to a young person is always hard to make sense of. And uh, particularly in Grant's case, because, I don't know, he was like the furniture of US soccer. He was like someone that was... I knew about Grant Wall before I moved to this country. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew who he was. He he was the soccer writer for Sports Illustrated. And I'd read some of his stuff. Um, and I can't, I, I just, there's such an emptiness. And, and also the pace of things the last few days. Grant is there. He did his podcast during the week where he talked about how he felt, uh, how he'd been struggling with some kind of illness uh, since he'd been in Qatar. And then... He's talking about how excited he was for the quarterfinals. And then it's all over. And that's it. Just the sheer finality of it. And the next thing you're seeing in his face 
on the on the screen at the stadium yesterday before the England game. And tributes are coming through. It's it's utterly surreal. Completely surreal. Yeah, yeah, it is. Surreal is, is the word that I've kind of used several times over the last 48 hours or so. Um, I don't know. Some of what you say there is, is interesting to me, JJ, how like his name was one um, that resonated with you before you even lived here. Mm. Um, I think that's what makes this for a lot of people here in America such a profound loss because... I mean, look, you've been here long enough now, like you understand the American soccer culture and the landscape as well as anybody. Um, And, you know, I think Grant, his name resonated a little bit differently because like, I don't know, you know, we've always said soccer has been big in the U.S. for a long time. But by the same token, we, we do understand sometimes where its place falls, whether we think that's right or not is up for debate. But the fact that Grant... You know, he he left basketball at Sports at Sports Illustrated to come do this, to come be the soccer guy in the U.S. And I think, you know, there were not. It's a time. You know, he's obviously he was only forty eight, uh, so he was a young man when that happened. Um, but there were not many. I mean, like I, I don't know. I, I'd have to go back and really think about it. But if you talk about guys in mainstream sports media who decided soccer is going to be the thing that I cover. Like that's, that will be my role. Um, that's a hard thing to have done. That's a hard decision. I think probably for, there might've been other journalists who were presented with that opportunity that said, eh, I don't know. I'm not sure if that sport can sustain, you know, me doing that as my profession. I'm not sure. Grant took that on. Like he, you know, I, I was listening to him at one point somewhere along the way. I'm trying to remember where this was, but he, you know, he spoke about, wanting to do that about all the stories because soccer is such a global game. There's so many more stories to be told uh, in, in soccer than what he thought there was in basketball. And I that's think he what said he that to us. To yeah. I, actually, I think you're right. I think you're right. Like he, yeah. He talked about um, that. There's just so many stories out there in the sport. Um, and I think, you know, his, his decision to do that being kind of the preeminent soccer journalist in this country for, you know, a good, I mean, 20 years or so now, I think he's just resonated so deeply with so many American soccer fans over the years. Um, and so, you know, people who have known him for years, people who have never met him, I mean, this is this has really hit people uh, from all ends of the spectrum. I was listening to Jeff Perlman, who came up with him at SI and, and how they were friends. And and I think Grant even may have set him up on, on, on the date with his wife uh, when Jeff, I think he... I think Jeff was reminiscing the other night after hearing the news and he said that they were at some party and um, Grant pointed out uh, what would become Jeff's wife. said, she's cute, you should talk to her. And um, it, Jeff talked about his confidence though and um, he did. He had total confidence in that soccer was a thing that was worth covering, that people would come to and and want to engage with and that they would read, and that they would absorb, and that they would get interested in the game. At a time when you couldn't convince soccer executives, or excuse me, TV executives, media executives about soccer. Soccer had been this this thing that had a a stronghold in America, but never a stronghold on the psyche of of the larger American consciousness, and, and could never be brought on the mainstream media and made into this big thing. And 
and granted so much to push it forward. Like Sports Illustrated was and probably still is like this amazing, iconic brand. And so for them to have pieces about soccer, well-researched, um, deep, you know, meaty pieces about the game written by, by somebody, that meant a lot. That meant a huge amount. And, and I can think of so many tournaments and incidents where uh, something happened in the soccer world and SI would cover it and they'd do an, an amazing job and Grant would be at the forefront of that. And, um, you know, he was so enthusiastic about it and genuine about it that, like, sometimes he rubbed people like me the wrong way and, and mainly just on Twitter. But because he was, like, sometimes enthusiasm is... It's hard to see it in other people when you don't feel it yourself and you push back. But Grant was, he, he was genuine. Like, of all the tributes I've heard from, from journalists across the soccer spectrum, not just in America, that's the one thing they said about him was he was totally enthusiastic about the game. And when I listened to the podcast, the, his podcast the other day, which was so tragic now, he was absolutely buzzing for those games yesterday. He talked about how he couldn't wait to be at England versus France. And it is an unfathomable cruelty that it happens this way, that he dies at the stadium and he doesn't get to, he doesn't get to do that. It, it, is, it is just it's one of the perverse things about, about life, that that can happen to somebody. Um, and also the amount of young journalists and, and people in the industry now who he reached out to um, and who was help- he was helpful to is just immense. He would go out of his way to try and offer help. And let me tell people who aren't in, in our industry or our business or who haven't been around, me- media is full of bullshit. Like, it's so full of it. And me- so many media people want you to think that, like, they'll, they'll make so many promises to you, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do that. And most of it never happens. But all I've seen is examples from Aaron West uh, to Zito Madu to so many different people coming up saying their stories about how Grant actually offered them solid, tangible, real help. Not promises, not, yeah, hey, we'll meet up and we'll do this and we'll do it. None of that. Absolute, actual, real help. And that means so much. And look, did we have that from him? He came in studio with us. Mm-hmm. Like we, one of our things was there was no trajectory to what happened with us. We didn't exist. And then the next thing we're on ESPN. So I'm sure it was hard to fathom where these pair of bozos came from. But, but like, I, I mean, I would have had a, not an adversarial. That's, that's just not the word for, for what happened. But like every now and again, I would see a tweet from Grant. I'd be like, I don't know about that one. or I don't know about this. And sometimes I'd snipe back. Because that's just what Twitter draws you into doing. It never stopped him from coming on our podcast. Never. He never held it against you. Never did anything like that. And I was so um, impressed with the way he went out and he's gone about creating his own thing on his own, covering the World Cup for his, for his um, subscribers, doing his Substack, doing his podcast, that I subscribed. I looked at it. I said, how much is it a year? It's like 50-something. Right before the World Cup. And I said... Look, it's my business to be up on U.S. soccer and to be able to talk about it. And Grant Wall is going to be putting stuff out there. So I'm going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I remember he, he tweeted, 
uh, just hit 3,000 subscribers, which I'm telling you is no mean feat. I don't care if you're Grant Wall. To get someone to pay money for your stuff these days is really, really tough in this fractured media landscape. But uh, he tweeted out he was so happy he got to 3,000. And I had just subscribed, and I said, well, Grant, I'm probably 3,001. And he responded back. He was so happy. Like, it's it's deeply unfair that we're sitting here and talking about him in the past tense now. I At 48, this guy was, he was just getting started. And um, and like I said, I didn't love everything he said, he wrote. I didn't love everything he tweeted. I remember in 2018, the one of the biggest soccer pylons I've ever seen was when he tweeted, I think American journalists ask some of the best questions at press conferences. And I'm like, Grant, no, don't tweet that. And Barry Glendening and everyone, oh, and it's God. just his yeah. pylon. They're all in on top of him. But every one of them respected him because you can see from their tributes. Filippo Clear was talking about him on the Guardian Football Weekly as well. Um, it's, 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 so, it's so deeply unfair. Um, I, um, I can't get my head around it. And I remember when he came in studio with us, we talked for a half hour afterwards, after we hit stop. He just yeah. kept talking. Um, that enthusiasm was real and it was genuine. And, um, and that, that's what made him what he was. I, and I'm even thinking, you know, he, there were so many um, dorks who would accuse him of being like an MLS shill. Like if you're a journalist who covers MLS, that's what you get. Well, I'm looking back at some of his stuff. And I'm remembering like from, from 2009, uh, which was like one of my first years out here um, on a visit, uh, July 6th, this is in the SI vault, 2009, how Beckham blew it. When he came to LA two years ago, David Beckham was supposed to lift soccer's profile in the US and help the Galaxy vie for a title. Instead, he failed as a leader, foundered on the field and alienated his most important teammate by Grant Wall. And that, that that read is unbelievable. That's the one. Wow. Like, Be- like Beckham, I, I remember press conference. And even in my mind now, I'm thinking, I must text Grant when that happened. Like, that's how weird I am. But there was a, there was a press conference where um, Beckham refused to take a question from him. After he wrote about Beckham not picking up the check for the players. <laughs> like, that's, right. that's another yeah. thing. He got right in there. He got Landon Donovan to talk for the Beckham experiment and talk in the most frank manner that it, 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 it caused such a furore that like Donovan pretty much had to almost retract what he said. But we knew what he said the first time was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even re- more recently, I think it was like 20, 2019, 2020, that, that direction, he... Um, he went back. Uh, he did a piece for Sports Illustrated. Maybe it was even last year um, when he'd, he'd, he'd healed some rifts and would do little pieces every now and again. He spoke to original Brazilian Ronaldo and he did this great piece about him. And he even like asked a question I would have just completely avoided, even being afraid to, about the moniker of being called like Fat Ronaldo, about how like his weight and the way he went, how that, that hurt him and affected him. And he asked him that question. And Ronaldo just opened up to him. It's, um, it's mad. It's absolutely mad. And uh, it, terrible. Genuinely terrible. And like we didn't, we knew him fairly well. Not as, not but nearly But I would well. not, yeah. But I would not, you know, pretend to say, like some of the people who really knew him, I mean. 
oh. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm not. It would be no, I'm not. To put us on that on that sort of level and and make no, people think no, that. No. I mean, we weren't. But, I, but we did. You know. But we knew. I mean, it, look, the American soccer community is is a tight knit one. It's not an enormous one. Um, I think part of that, like I remember the the back and forth, what you mentioned there, um, him and Barry Glendening, uh, and you know that the stuff that he that Grant the way he vocalized American soccer media. Um, mm-hmm. I do think for whatever, for whatever, you know, eye rolls that got from certain people around the world. Um, I do think even if there were people here in the U S who were like, like kind of like with your reaction, Oh, Grant, don't, don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. But I think a lot of people might've had that reaction when all that happened, even me. Cause I'm so like weirdly non-confrontational. Even <laughs> I, when he did it, I was like, Oh, Oh no. <laughs> How's this going to make us, what are people going to think of us? Yeah. But like, by the same token, I think that's what made him like such a force in American soccer, not just the stories that he wrote, but the sense that like, he always had the, the back of American soccer. And I don't mean like the U S soccer federation, certainly no, um, or MLS or any of that. I just mean like American soccer as a thing, like he was always there to kind of support it and, and to like needed the world to know that like, you know, we're not some ugly stepchild in the world of, of American, uh, of global soccer. Like we know our stuff too. Like he needed the world to know that there are people in this country that like, that can like an American accent can talk Premier League or can, you know, he was, he was such, but but um, I think as well, he was like, he's what I would consider like a real true journalist. You know, because he kept all his contacts, despite writing stuff that was definitely not to the flavor or the taste of many people at USSF. In fact, on his last podcast, he's talking with um, Chris Whittingham, his sidekick mm-hmm. on the pod, and they're they're discussing <clears throat> what we were discussing. We're next with Bearhalter. What's next for the program? And um, and Grant just circles back and says, "Listen, uh, I wrote." That whatever, you know, Bearhalter might have been the right choice. Say he was the right choice back, like, and this is at the time of his appointment. Uh, his appointment, but the process was terrible, like absolutely terrible. Like Grant wasn't afraid to say, like, he, I, I genuinely think the things he wrote, the things he opined on, he meant them. There was no clout chasing. There was no um, flavor of the month. Like he, he, he had these contacts. He was able to find out the truth. Like, he knows there was no real interviews for that job, that Bearhalter was given that job. And he said that. And I'm sure that pisses a lot of people off in USSF. But he said it, he knows it, and he's built up the relationships, and he, and he told people. And there was, there was a truth and an honesty to what he did. And also, that enthusiasm. And I, I would say, in some ways, like, I'm enthusiastic about doing this, but writing was always a barrier for me. I found the process really like tough. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I see people who could do it with the ease that he could and the clarity um, and the success, I was probably jealous of that. Like, like yeah. definitely. Um, there's one, one thing that really struck me. I, I mentioned him already, already and um, he's an excellent writer himself. Uh, Zito Madu tweeted, it's so strange to suddenly relegate someone to the past and that no matter what, what comes out about his death after that, it's happened and there's nothing that can be done to reverse it. That is the thing. Like, the finality is just so crushing. And I think of his wife, Celine, and his family. Um, 
and his colleagues and the people who really yeah. knew him. And I, I have nothing but, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. There are, there, there's no words. Yeah, you, um, you said some words before actually that I, I didn't write down very much for this. Um, but there was a couple. There was one thing I wrote down that you mentioned before when you said he moved the game forward. Um, mm. That was one thing that I wrote down as well. He moved soccer forward in this country. It's JJ, no that is an ex- that is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do for a non-player or coach or president of an organization. That is that is an incredible achievement for a journalist to be able to say. And I think that everyone who has followed this sport in this country for certainly this current generation and i i think you could probably say that sort of the tail end of the previous generation um you know i I think everyone would say that grant wall for for certain moved soccer forward in america um you know but the other thing too that's been interesting for me to sort of have like the unveiled over the the past of the 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 past couple days was, you know, obviously we can sit here and talk chapter and verse about his impact on the American soccer community, the way he wrote about it, the stories he had, you know, like I said, he moved the game forward. But I think one thing that's been particularly interesting for Grant Wall, the person, is the um, the personal accounts that are now kind of just pouring outward of mm. the things that he did for people yeah. that no one, with the intention of no one ever knowing that it happened, but people now are, are feeling compelled to kind of come out and tell these stories so the rest of us can get a better sense of what Grant was all about. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of them uh, that I've seen that stood out, Steve Zakuani, uh, formerly of MLS, um, you know, I saw he tweeted, uh, do not want to make this about me, only about the great person Grant Wall was. After my horrific injury, I was in a dark place and was refusing every media request, was not in a space to speak about it. Grant flew to Seattle and convinced me to speak for two hours. It was therapeutic. He somehow got me to laugh, open up, feel hopeful, and ultimately grateful to have a release from my feelings. He wrote a great piece about it in SI, and I always I always remained grateful to him in every future interaction. A very good man by all accounts. Blessings to his friends and family. You know, you've seen I've seen that on repeat, basically, over and yeah. over, about his ability to kind of know when someone was in a dark place and get them to feel better in some way, whether it was a small gesture or a big one. Um, another I think one he that understood, I saw. I, I do think he understood the privileged position he was in. He was the best, one of the best paid soccer writers in the world at SI. And it, it all came out when he left. Um, but it was because he was that good and he'd worked. He, he basically created a job for himself. <laughs> right. Yeah. And me, like, and saw the value of of U.S. soccer, and saw the value of soccer in America, and went after it. Um, and he he understood the that position, and he understood that he could help people, and he went and he did it. And again, one of those phrases you hear all the time, you know, I'm paying it forward. Are you? Like he was, he definitely was. Yeah. One other one that I saw, like his again, his like his sense of of mental health, you know, even almost before, you know, that's, that's become kind of a mainstream conversation now. Um, you know, the issue of mental health and making sure people are, are in a right headspace and being sensitive to that. And it felt like he was almost on like the, the early wave of, of recognizing that as an important, a real important element of American life. JJ, if you go back to 2017, when the U S lost to Trinidad and Tobago, 
uh, and missed out on the World Cup. Yeah. One of the big things that came out of that was the bulletin board material that the U.S. seemingly created with the tweets that went out beforehand about the Otto Bolden Stadium and the water around the pitch and the videos mm. of players getting getting piggyback rides across the water onto the field. And, you know, pre-match, um, the narrative of the arrogance of American soccer. Who do they think they are? Um, and so I don't know if this name in any way resonates with you um, or most of our listeners, but Jeff Crandall, um, he sent out a post. Jeff Crandall was the one who worked in that social media department for American soccer, who took yeah, those videos and who posted that material. Um, and so a few years ago, he sent out a tweet on National Mental Health Awareness Day, basically detailing his experiences after that whole incident had taken place. And, you know, he went into great detail about the unbelievable weight uh, that he felt, you know, someone who just worked in social media, who they're not supposed to be part of the story. He he felt in his head, whether it's true or not, that he bore some blame, some real blame for the U.S. not qualifying for a World Cup, the greatest loss in God. American soccer history. And there, a guy in social media for them felt that he was in some way responsible. And he talked about being in some really, uh, some really dark places uh, after that had happened. And, you know, it's not a person we ever really would have thought about we just saw the videos and thought about the impact that it had on american soccer we never thought about the guy who actually hit send and posted those videos and what that whole experience did to him so he posted this the other night off of his original tweet detailing the guilt and the, the mental distress that he felt after all that uh and he posted a tweet saying i was terrified when i put out this tweet three years ago on national mental health awareness day Grant Wall was the first to message me. He first asked how I was doing. He then asked if it was okay to retweet, knowing his reach would signal boost it. Grant's humanity was what made him a great journalist. Thank you, Grant. I just, you know, I've seen that kind of thing over and over again of yeah. him just reaching out to people and seeing how they're doing, just things that, you know, were never really supposed to hit the light of day. He, you know, he was always keenly aware to, to check in on people, and, and I think that's what made him... Um, you know, so many people within American soccer have, have just felt this so profoundly because, you know, Grant was someone that a lot of people viewed as a friend, even if they didn't know him nearly as well as, as many of his friends, his real friends did. Um, and then finally, JJ, you talked before about uh, when he came in studio with us. I got to say, for me personally, as an American soccer fan, um, we have, you know, we've had a lot of really good compelling interviews big guests over the years players managers um i can probably count on i don't know just like one hand the number of them where i felt almost like nervous for beforehand <laughs> yeah. yeah um and for somebody who grew up you know i'm not that old grant was 10 years older than me um but reading his material in sports illustrated you know going as a soccer fan again skipping over the other articles to get oh grant has a soccer one you know to get to that one um when he when he agreed to do that it was january 3rd 2019 um american soccer had just come out of the year of transition with dave sarakin bearhalter had just been hired uh and so we we asked him would you be willing maybe to come in and just sort of like we know that this moment of transition has kind of gone into the next phase. We need we need someone who can help us and our listeners explain. Okay, what's what's to come? We've got all we've got a new coach. We've got all these young players who are suddenly popping up around Europe. These teenagers, 
Uh, we need clarity in all this, and so we thought, F it. Let's, you know, we know Grant a little. He's been on, I think he had been on once or twice before over the phone. Mm. Let's see, he lives in New York. Um, and sure enough, yeah, of course I'll come in. No problem. Just tell me where you guys are at. Let's do it. Should be fun. And I remember seeing that and being like, oh man, this is, like, this is happening. Like, yeah. Grant's going to come in and sit with us, like, to talk U.S. soccer and just feeling like... I got to get this right. Like, yeah. And, you know, like, and you factor in your extremely low opinion of yourself. I yeah. Mean, so imagine deal. what, and that's, that's how I feel about myself. Imagine what other people think of me. And, but like, I, I joke about it a little bit, but like by the same token, I've always said, you know, I'm not famous. Like I'm not, I was never a former soccer player. I was not a reporter. I was not in the soccer media. I was just asked one day, um, you know, I worked at ESPN and I was, we were asked to do a, a podcast on a small, what was a small platform then on ESPN New York, not even like ESPN's main pod center. Um, and I, of course, I said, yeah, like I wanted to be in this industry and do this. So, yeah, of course. And like, but I always understood, like, I don't know what that makes, how I'm, what that makes me within the American soccer community. And so, beloved. Um, <laughs> I don't know that that's true. Uh, certainly then, I don't know how, what that was. But like, so for Grant to take time to like yeah. almost, you know, be willing to, to do that. Like who were, who were we that like, that he'd do it? it. It felt in a small way, almost validating that like, wow, what a cool thing. Um, and you know, he was, he was so generous with his time. It was a great conversation that we had. Like you said, the mics turned off at the end and we then just kind of like chilled in the studio and talked for another 30, 45 minutes about <laughs> soccer, about, you know, everything. Um, and God, like, uh, and I'm not just saying this now because of the moment that we're in, but I mean, it was an experience that I'll remember the rest of my life. Um, just how, how cool that was. And, um, man, it's just so, it's just so terribly sad to be sitting here and talking about it. Like, like you mentioned with Zito Madu, talking about it in this, in this past tense now in, in a tragically reflective way. Um, so to close out JJ, I did go back. I did want to listen to some of that interview that we did with him. Just, I don't know, I, you get weirdly nostalgic in these kind of moments uh, when things like this happen. And so um, I did. I pulled out the last three minutes or so of that interview, uh, and we'll we'll end with this. Uh, and then, like I said, we'll we'll come into the, I guess, the more normal, conventional section of the podcast after. But. Um, you know, we, we closed out that interview we had done about, I forget how long, JJ, but, you know, we did a, a whole podcast about the direction U.S. soccer was headed, um, women's soccer. You know, he's been such a champion for women's soccer in a way that very few other journalists have. And his voice on it is um, is magnified because of who he is and the platform he has. We talked about that. Uh, it was a great conversation. But finally, we got to the end. And, and I remember thinking, OK, how you know, we've done all this. You know, he's done so many things how can we close this out? And so we sort of just asked him, what about you? Like, what about your career? What do you like doing? Um, and so I kind of thought that in a moment like this, it would be interesting to go back and, and replay that section for people to hear Grant sort of talk about himself um, and his career. Um, so we'll, we'll end on that. Like I said, we'll come back with a podcast after that. Um, Grant Wall, 48 years old. God, rest in peace. Um, all our best wishes to his friends and family. Let's go back now and listen to the end of that podcast from January 3rd, 2019.
Well, I'll tell you what, man. You've been so generous with your time. Uh, before we let you go, we talked about your book a little bit. You're on TV. You have a podcast. You write uh, for Sports Illustrated. What is your favorite thing to do around oh, the wow. sport? I love my job, and I'm really lucky to be able to do soccer full-time for the last 10 years. Uh, I love the people involved in soccer in the U.S. and in the, in the stories, there's so much variety, yeah. whether it's the domestic game and the men's and women's side, the growth of MLS, or the international game and the growth of European soccer in the United States. And that was kind of why I switched out of basketball to soccer over a decade ago was because I liked basketball, but I didn't think there was a huge variety of stories like there is okay. in soccer. And I love that ability to kind of address so many different things um, and storylines and soccer's interwoven to so many cultural and, you know, all that stuff around the world. And it's global. Um, so that's what I love. Probably the single thing I love the most are doing long interviews for my podcast uh-huh. with people because – to me, they're more like old school magazine style interviews that I used to do a bit more often. But now I can do these every week. They're not sound bites. You can really get at someone's story and their thoughts on something and uh, and really get to know somebody, uh, I think, more for these podcasts. And um, for me, that's fun to be able to do that one day and, and publish it as a podcast the next day and have people listen to it. Who's somebody that you've had on in one of those interviews where you walked away just like blown away, just impressed beyond what you were maybe going into it expecting? I mean, Tyler Adams recently um, was the first time I'd done a sit-down interview with him. And I, I said to him at one point, I was like, you are like the oldest 19-year-old I've ever met in my life. <laughs> And I say that as a compliment, you know, like just so mature. And you come away from it thinking this guy is not crazy at all when he says he wants to be the captain. Like he could be the captain right now of the U.S. national team, I think. Um, And so that really stood out to me. But um, I think we're pretty lucky in in American soccer to have the quality of interviews that we have – you know, and I think that applies to the U.S. women's team, uh, some of these young guys on the U.S. men's team. Um, you know, you mentioned Michael Bradley, a guy who is always going to give you an interesting interview. Uh, and his dad, Bob Bradley, is always he's one of my favorite guys to interview because, you know, he's going to challenge you at some point and you and you have to be ready and bring your A game for that interview. Like I remember interviewing Bob uh, last year. And we were we got to talking about um, why he wasn't a candidate really for the U.S. job, and he'd gotten off to a really good start with LAFC, and and, uh, and I was saying I think people may be you know, reexamining your tenure before based on what's happened since and what you achieved as the U.S. coach. And his response was like, "I didn't see you writing anything positive about me when I got <laughs> fired." <laughs> And I was like, okay, okay, touche. But I like that. I like having people who are willing to be honest and real in in interviews. And I think we have more than our share in American soccer. Very cool. Hey, this was great, man. We really appreciate the time. Uh, It should be a fun year for U.S. soccer. We'll see which way it goes. But uh, thank you for uh, for coming in and setting us up. Thanks for uh, having me on, guys. I enjoyed it. Good stuff, man.
All right, back now here on Caught Offside. Um, and however uncomfortable a transition this is, um, there are still games that, you know, like you had said the other day, like you had just been talking about now, JJ, that, you know, just the other day, Grant Wall was talking about how excited he was for these games to be played. Um, and so I know that that is, you know, that idea is still pervades here and that there is still a lot of excitement that people have felt over these quarterfinals of the World Cup. And so, you know, however however uncomfortable a transition this is, we do want to talk about that as well. Um, and so let's get right into it. We'll start with JJ. Uh, I guess we'll go most recent. Okay. Because um, it's probably most fresh in people's minds. Oh, man. England-France. What a matchup. Obviously, two of the, the huge names globally in this sport. Um this is this was a very interesting one. You and I, we've joked about this a little bit before. Mm. I'm gonna come I'll come full out and say it right now. And I'm ready for the JJ I roll. I'm ready for him to be sickened by this. Then I'm just one of the one of this group of American soccer fans, but whatever, I don't care. Sometimes as a match is happening organically, you're pulled one way or another. It just happens. It's just the way it is. In any sport this happens. JJ, uh, I was full England yesterday. I was old England. I old Albion Andy. Yeah, I couldn't help it. And I know you, you always mock the American soccer fan who shows up at the bar wearing, you know, the England jersey or whatever. Or the, no, or but the they don't. Their, they don't. They show up wearing their the Premier League jersey. Yeah, fine. But you have to, like, again, within within the walls of American soccer fandom, like, that is another section of the fans in this country mm-hmm. that, like, the they... Like you see, the group of American soccer fans that go to bars at seven in the morning on weekends is also like, it's a thing. It's a click within the American soccer world, and so I think that there's some. It's hard to explain, but like Dude. there is some kind of connection that some American fans feel to the English game. Fine, and I felt it. Fine, cool, great. Have you guys no kinship with those who help you liberate yourselves? Like nothing for the French. Nothing. We'll just go straight in behind the king again. Fall in line. Ah, time heals all wounds, JJ. Well, okay. I mean, I mean, time clearly has built some kind of bridge across the Atlantic right into the the doorsteps of of Buckingham Palace for you well, guys. The, come on, man. The U.S. and England, the special relationship. That's a thing. That's not just a soccer thing. They're our best friend. The, the special relationship is uh, Reagan era nonsense. And I would say I would suggest that there's a pretty long-standing special relationship between the French and the Americans, um, notwithstanding the the unpleasantness over freedom fries around uh, 2003. I'll never but, let that go. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, I, we've our English listeners have uh, some of them have let me know that they will be giving this podcast a swerve. Uh, I'm I'm not here I'm not here to gloat. Um, people know how I feel. It's anybody but England. I'm here to talk about a game, and I definitely feel this was one that really England left on the table, considering their own performance and considering the performance of the French, which was not up there. The French were... They were a little bit of a disappointment, actually. And it was right there for the English, and and they'll look back at that one with, um, yeah, with a lot of regret. I think. I totally agree. I totally agree that this is just 
this feels like a massive missed opportunity for England to have kind of um, written off a lot of the criticisms that they've gotten over the last two major tournaments for them, the 2018 World Cup and the 2020 Euros, that like, oh, that England team only advanced that far because the road was paid for them with opponents that they should always be beating. This was a chance for them to say, no, 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 you're going to see now that we're actually this good. And they, they played to that level. But the score did not reflect it. And so in the end, I guess for a lot of people, that narrative will will persist. And they had willing uh, accomplices in, in... Oh, my in, God. Like, if you look at Theo Hernandez and uh, Upa Meccano's performance uh, of what I would say just recklessness, <laughs> complete another... Re- like, Can we talk Upa about McCann the Theo Hernandez the- penalty? Um. Can we just talk yeah, about? Yeah, let's talk about that. The, the let's talk about that. I mean, I, I've got madness. some. I've got some bullets for Upa Meccano too. But let's sure, let's talk sure. about let's talk about Leroy Jenkins himself. <laughs> like sometimes you'll watch a game and a thing will happen, and you'll you'll be left sitting there, kind of scratching your head, being like, "Did he? Did he forget the rules? Like, does he? Like, what happened there? I I, I mean, did he forget where he was on the field? I, I just I." I I don't know. I, I I guess I'm not surprised Was it wasn't called in real time that VAR needed to be called in because you know you, you want to make extra certain on a challenge like that. He did go in with his shoulder. It's not like he went to ground. So I I suppose I can see why VAR needed to be the ones to intervene. Um, Andrew, if he goes shoulder to shoulder with Mount, no problem. But you're still saying, oh, did he need to do that because Mount's not getting to that ball? No. Did did he think this was American football? What's that rule about? If there's a foul, but the ball's nowhere near it. Now, pass interference. It was uncatchable. Oh, yeah. That penalty is declined. Was it, like was that what he was expecting? Like, what is he talking about? I couldn't believe it. Uh, like, it was, it was total recklessness. Uh, and it was so funny because the euphemisms that have now come into the game, I, I can't remember who, who I heard talking about it on the Fox broadcast, but they were like, uh, you know, Tio Hernandez is a guy who, who doesn't want to do much defending. <laughs> he wanted to do too much there. Way too much. Like, just don't do anything. Again, if you are going to make contact with Mason Mount there, it has to be shoulder to shoulder. He shoved him into the back. It was, it was a, a, it a full-on body check. Stonewall penalty for absolutely no reason. But even in the first half, how many times did, did uh, Upa Meccano try to, like, uh, how would you describe what he did? Try to alpha Harry Kane by like stepping in front and winning the ball and Kane just spins by him like Kane's ability to use his body to his advantage because he is not he is never going to be the fastest guy out there he's just not um, he doesn't appear to be the strongest physically when you when you just look at him but I think he's he's deceptively both of those things but his only for Hugo Lloris to come and and smother that one that could have been you know yeah um, great it was a great save I guess I, I would I would say for like there's a lot on, on, on Twitter today about this being the best performance under Southgate, and yet they walk away with nothing. For all that, that domination point around the hour mark, it's 1-1, and England's, like, all you could see was an England victory at that point. The French looked, looked ragged, and they never really capitalized on the opportunities they made. And the body blow then was... Right at the end of that period of dominance, the French go down the field and score mm-hmm. to put themselves ahead. It was it was it was it was exactly the kind of game I think we thought it would be in terms of how close it would be. Like I predicted, it would be two one on the radio last week. Um, 
But I never, like, I, I can't shake the feeling that in that period, England should have uh, stepped on, on the French throats, finished the game. And they didn't. And they'll look back at this and they will just be full of regret. Sure. Oh, they absolutely will. I mean, there will be a, you know certain moments they look back on in this one. I mean, like you said, uh, Lloris coming out and smothering Kane's chance. Uh, Harry Maguire's header. Yeah. That just went wide that he got, you know, it's, it's supposed, it's his strength, you know, that cross to Luke Shaw. Are, what's that? That cross to Luke Shaw that was cut out. I think that was going for towards Saka. Also the substitutions, Andrew, I wouldn't have taken Saka out. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a whole just piece that I will un- unload at some point about, I know stones comes out. They have to put a sub on. They're chasing the game. There's 30 seconds left. So on comes Jack Grealish. But at that point, like, does Jack Grealish not come into this earlier? Like, is this all, is this the position he's now relegated to under? Like, Southgate does not fancy him. And you look at his, at his, his position for his club. He's the most expensive English player of all time. And I'm not, if there was a big game tomorrow morning, like Liverpool, Man City, or, or Man City, Real Madrid, you are not guaranteed Jack Grealish would start. In, in fact, he probably wouldn't. Like, the position he finds himself in in his career, at, at, at the in his peak years, is fascinating to me. Yeah, um, a little bit of uh, English Gio Reyna on an international kind, stage. Yeah, k- kind of. Except I'm not talking about Re- the way they play. I'm talking about the way the way maybe they're used within their international setup. Yeah, maybe. I, I, but I think the situation is much more urgent considering the age of Grealish and, mm-hmm. and, um, and the way the clock ticks after 25. But, um, yeah, just, just dis- disappointment for England and... Um, a, a, a general now it's funny a lot of journalists have come out and I'm seeing a lot of support for Southgate that this was a performance that means he should continue as manager I don't see it though well no you you I mean this is you wrote him off years ago um look it's again like I, I feel a little bit of like my my bear halter defense being applied to Southgate although I guess this one deviates from it a little bit, but like my whole results have to matter sentiment. Um, you know, the fact that England have achieved more in the last four years of, of English football than they've achieved at pretty much any point in their history with the exception, obviously of winning a world cup in 1966. But this has been, uh, this has been the most prosperous era in English football outside of that. I mean, that has to mean something. It just does. Now, the reason I say I deviate from it a little bit is because if, I, if I'm going with results don't matter is my credo here. Well, I mean, yesterday the result was they lost. So, but, you know, I think, I do think that England in that game, if they had been punished, if it had been one-sided, if they were clinging, you know, two ones can be, a, can be different in, in many ways. You know, if they were just clinging to some hope over the course of that, that was never really going to arrive, we would view it one way. But the fact that they were the, they were the better team, I felt, on that field yesterday in terms of those 90 minutes. Um, you know, I, I do think that that will do something in, in, in people's minds to sort of say, okay, well, maybe this, you know, maybe it does validate Gareth Southgate a little bit, even in defeat. Um, I don't know. He doesn't know what he wants to do. He said he's going to go through a moment of reflection now, take some time, decide where he wants his career to go next. Um, you know, cause he might, you know, we always talk about money being in the club game that probably being more fun, <laughs> I mean, look, in Europe, at least they do have the European Championship, so that cycle will begin before you know it, and uh, they'll be into that. Um, 
but it will be interesting to see where he goes next. I think the other thing for me, JJ, with Southgate, I don't know. I just feel like we've talked about this a little bit, but the more I watch international football, um, the less I blame managers when they maybe set up in a more defensive style. Just because I feel like in the end, a lot of times that in, in tournament setting, I do, I, I get it. I do think that there's a, a greater chance. It may not be. We don't like it because it's not. We're we're neutrals in 99% of matches that we watch. So when you sit down as a neutral to watch a game, especially a game with a team that has a ton of talent on it, you want it to be fun. And a lot of times, setting up defensively, not always willing to be on the front foot and take chances, it's not fun for the neutral. But I do think a lot of times in these tournaments, it it gets wins and it does produce results. So I may be a little bit more forgiving. Uh, I think of international managers who choose to go that route and Southgate, um, I guess would fall under that, uh, under that category. I'm curious what you think. I, I, I saw this tweet from Miguel Delaney who like follows England, um, a campaign of contradictions. It was because England played so well, they feel worse with the dressing room in quote numb. They firmly believed they were on the brink of history and yet so little of the campaign is memorable. And that is true. This has been a very weird campaign. Like, what was their big victory? So they beat Iran, who were in their own kind of shambles. They they played well, but England were supposed to win that game. Then they had the, the 0-0 with the U.S. where they were booed off the field. I think the U.S. were very good in that game. And then they beat Wales, a very poor Welsh side. And then they were bad for most of the first half against Senegal, and then they opened out. And played some really nice football, but again, yeah, it wound a game up ex- being a nice. That was a nice game, I thought. Yeah, England. but a game expected they were expected to win. Sure. And, and and then they come and play the French, and they play really, really well. But they, or they play well, but they lose two one. So it's very hard to look at this tournament and see, like, to draw a thread or to to say this is what like, it, it'll be looked at as kind of just something that happened. Uh, the focus on the European Championships now is going to be massive, really, really massive, because that is that is a tournament this team will absolutely think it can it can win, and um, and they'll go into that with hope. The young crop of players that they've got coming through, and you you know England they've got to get this right. Like, is it is it a bridge too far now for Southgate? Should they bring him back? I don't know. There's a lot of decisions to be made, and also who are you bringing in? You know, they have an identity under Southgate. You can we can argue whether it's good or bad, uh, but they've they've achieved things in terms of, I suppose, a lot of the men- maybe the mental barriers are gone now. Like they, there's an expectation building, and so who can fulfill that now? Is this, you know, is there one chapter left for Southgate or has he brought them as far as he can and then it's going to be someone who will take them the rest of the way? And who will that be? I don't know. I, I just want to talk about the French quickly, though. Yeah. One, one, other, one final note on England and then to use yeah, a, sure. a transition over to France, JJ. Um, for England, this is the seventh time they've been eliminated in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, more than mm. any side in the history of the competition. JJ, it feels like the, the quarterfinals are to England what the round of 16 is to Mexico. Here you shall come, but go no further. <laughs> Um, meanwhile, France, on the other side of this, the first reigning champion to reach the World Cup semifinals since? Uh, Argentina in 1990. Uh, Brazil, 98. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, 94, 98. On, yeah, you're right. And then, yeah, then they went on to lose the final to France in France. Um, I just, yeah, the French I, side of this. 
so so yeah so there was there was it was weird it was it wasn't a great performance from them uh, and i do think that period in the second half things could have really slipped away from them considering the game state um i i think at center back up Meccano, i i just i don't know i i i think he got away with plenty last night he was poor yeah he was um but even uh Tuchmani, who had scored that i thought it was a fantastic strike for the opener like the penalty he gave away unnecessary sack is not going towards the goal what are you doing stay on your feet yeah ridiculous um, Theo Hernandez and and you wonder Andrew it's possible for these to cost them down the line you know there's two games left um, but and Walker was a couple of times where Mbappe you know went past them but gen, generally they kept Mbappe Mbappe fairly under wraps I thought I mean, Giroud getting man of the match was weird. I, I mean, he gets man of the match because he scored the winner, but I don't think he was... I, I certainly don't think that was his best game in a French start. But Griezmann. Griezmann was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic again. Like, doing the dirty work. If you if you say this wasn't a... Cla- like the Talk about the delivery for Giroud is, fant- you know, a brilliant cross. But even if you were to say, okay, put that stuff to the side. I can show you all the tactical fouls he had just to stop England breaking. I mean, he was... It's he a was weird thing to give someone bre- man of the match for, though. No, but it just goes to show how he's he's come in and fulfilled this role that's beyond what he'd usually be asked to do because of the situation in the midfield, because of the players that they've lost prior to the tournament. And he's come in and he's 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 been absolutely everywhere, and this was another example of it. He is, he is so key to them, I cannot tell you. And and again, I don't want to harp on it, but his preparation for this tournament has been chef's kiss. Just play enough minutes to keep you ticking over in a top league. No way you'll get fatigued. Very little chance of injury, and in you come and and, and really dominate the dominate the World Cup. He's been brilliant, and he was brilliant again yesterday, especially yeah. when the French laboured because that was that's the best way way to describe that performance. Really laboured. Uh, yeah, it's a great point, and I think it's a sign. I mean, look, we've said throughout this tournament it's a sign of a great team um if your best players a for france are hurt and you're able to achieve what they're achieving i mean benzema is the reigning ballon d'or winner he's not he's not there we know you know in golo kante his importance pogba for france what he means in kunku who whether or not he would have started or come off the bench uh, i mean these are these are vitally important players that are missing for them so with that being the case it's then okay they're all gone so what do France need to do to be able to to succeed in this tournament? Well, Kylian Mbappe is going to have to play out of his mind. He might have to carry this team in moments. Uh, so far, he's done that. This has been his tournament. Now they've come up against their most di- difficult opponent yet. And you think, okay, well, if there was ever a moment where Mbappe really needed to be Mbappe, this would be the one. Because now they've got some real problems dealing with a really good England side who are going to typically be pretty stout defensively and tough to break down. And in the end, if I told you before the game, Mbappe's really, you're not going to hear his name really all that much throughout the course of this game. You'd probably think, well, then my guess is England win this thing. But it, to have a player like Chouameni, penalty aside, um, who can just take one from, what would you say he was there? Just kind of like 25 yards out and just bang. I mean, it was such a get out of your seat and yell moment in that game. You know, to have a player like Giroud, who is just, you know, I know you talk about Griezmann doing the dirty work, but Giroud is so that guy too. Like I said last week, glue guy. 
for this French team through multiple cycles now, um, you know, who just in the right moment makes the right run, able to get around his defender. You know, yeah, it takes a fortunate bounce off of Harry Maguire, but you put yourself in those positions. You know, they for them to be able to to still be flying like this and, and in the semifinals of this tournament with, with all of these things that have kind of gone against them, I think you have to say, I don't know how it's going to play out from here. I mean, now they've got a game coming up against Morocco, which we'll talk about, that oh. you fully expect them to win. And I, I suppose if that goes another way, that it'll, it'll change the way we view this French side immeasurably. But as things stand here right now, I mean, this is a this is a great team to be able to be missing all those pieces and in a quarterfinal against England have their best player not really play up to his level and still be here. Um, this is This is really impressive stuff that you're seeing from the French. Can I make a comment on the Chumani goal that's very, very specific and very JJ specific? Oh, yeah. Something about, okay, if we're going to play get. JJ multiple choice here on a sentence that begins that way. Okay, let's think. Does it have something to do with the pitch and the way Ooh. in that area? Was there maybe the ball took a bounce on oh. a pitch a certain way? <laughs> I mean, it's like we share a brain. We know each other too well. It's frightening. Go on. There's some. There's an extra layer of humiliation. I feel with the way the goal, not the shot goes in. Fine, it's a goal. But the way the ball settles in the net, so it hits the back of the net and just pops up and down. And there's something emphatic about that when it hits the net. It's like, yeah, you take that. Yeah, see where that went. The other one that's embarrassing, uh, that would have been another good option, was if it hits the net and then as uh, Pickford is strewn on the grass, the ball rolls back and just gently taps him on the forehead. That's another good one. Have you seen that? The goalkeeper goes full length, the ball hits the net, but it rolls out slowly. And it's almost like, work, work, work. But yeah, but, I, I I get that. Yeah, there's 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 net energy. There's there's sure. a language of the net. So when the the emphatic way that that uh, uh, Tumani hits that shot, hits the net, and the way it pops up was just like a, an extra like one. Yeah, all right, that's fair. I mean, that's uniquely JJ. But yeah, <laughs> I, I could see that. I wonder I if anybody else notices these things. Can we for a second uh, before we move off of this one? Um, the the Spursy Andy in me, yeah. I mean, like I don't. Mommy and Daddy fighting is an uncomfortable thing for anyone to see, especially someone like me. Like I said, non confrontational. Um, there was no fighting, but watching Kane stand over the ball, and then the camera cut to Loris in goal. These are the two faces of an era of Tottenham Hotspur football staring each other down in one of the biggest moments in French and English football history, perhaps. Uh, I wonder if other Tottenham fans out there, I almost had to look away. I said, this is too uncomfortable. Like, someone's legacy, like, I love both of these guys. Someone's legacy is about to be immeasurably hurt or enhanced at the other's expense. Um, JJ, I, for Kane to miss that the way he did after after the way he scored his previous penalty, you couldn't have felt any better about him stepping up there in that situation. Apparently I really, not. I We've felt got, sick for him. Apparently not. There's some wise, wise people on Twitter who said there's no way he should have taken the second one. Okay. I, I, I will never co-sign that. I will never be in agreement <laughs> oh, I, with that. I, I think it's absolute I, bollocks. I think it's that's nonsense. ridiculous. Yeah, it's nonsense. 
Imagine if Southgate sent after Kane did that on his first penalty, and and generally speaking, what his record is on penalties. I've seen him take a lot for Tottenham. They're pretty damn good. You feel good when he steps up to that spot. Imagine knowing all that and what he did on his first one. If Southgate then sent someone else up there in that moment to take that penalty, I'm just crazy. I'm just reporting what the Galaxy brands are thinking. That's all. Oh, people will say they'll say anything (laughs) in hindsight. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's dumb. Um, He just leans back a fraction and puts just a tiny bit too much on it, and then it skyrockets. It's when you when you want to hit it hard. It is a it is a dangerous game. You get that little bit too much on it and a tiny little bit of lean. And that thing is just going to the sky, going I've to seen the stars. Him, I mean, look, he—I've seen him have them have them saved before. I don't know that I've ever seen him miss one like that. I really can't recall it. Mm. I don't know. One of the other Tottenham fans who listens to this podcast, Newman, whoever—if you can go through the archives and find one, maybe people have tweeted it. Um, I don't know that I've seen one skied. You know, yeah, uh, that was—I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. You know, it's one of those where I, I could visually see the net rippling before he took it. Um, but yeah, the the Kane Loris stare down. Oh, that was that was gut wrenching. Um, I feel I feel terrible. I mean, Kane, you could see it after the match, the way he he kind of fell to the ground and just was staring kind of blankly at the ground. Uh, Pickford came over, kind of like almost as a Kane bodyguard, mo- trying to move the camera away from him. Um, that was that was all pretty gut wrenching. I think you know Kane is the captain of that England team. I think we all know how much England means to him. Um, that was that one. He said afterwards he's going to have to live with that. Uh, that that hurts. That, now there was a little bit of really talk hurts. afterwards about the referee, the foul on Saka in the lead up to the first French goal, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, but but Southgate, I thought dealt well. In fairness, he said there's no way we're talking about referees right now. Well, the, he may feel that way. <laughs> he should talk to some of his players. Yeah, uh, I know. Harry I d- Maguire had a lot to say about it. Um, well, I mean, a lot of the English media had a lot to say about it. I, I'm not for me. Like, I'm not putting that defeat down to down to the referee. No, I'm not. me neither. I mean, look, and I know the referee. Two, they were awarded two penalties in the game. Now VAR helped with the second one. Um, I know the referee but, in the the uh, the Holland uh, Argentina game came under serious abuse from the winners um, a lot of it coming from the winners but again not the reason the game went the way it did like players it's a it's a maxim players will always look to blame somebody else there's always somebody else rather than their own performance or or what happens on the field yeah so out england go at the quarterfinal stage france their defense of their championship continues um We'll see how far it can go, and it will be Morocco that they face, JJ, in the semifinals after they um, after they are victorious over Portugal in um, in what has become a stunning run here. Uh, the first African nation to reach the semifinals of a World Cup, which is really interesting um, because I don't know if you there's been so many great African teams. If you kind of laid them all out in front of you and and, and looked at some of these different squads over the years. Um, I don't know that this would be the one that we would pick to say this will be the one who who carries the mantle historically for African football, but here they are. No, we've we've generally looked at the at the northern African teams like Tunisia, 
I mean, Morocco have had good players in the past, but I don't think they've had such a spread of talent. And, um, you know, the decision to obviously change managers worked out. Uh, they are just so hard to play against. Mm-hmm. Um, and Portugal were just off, Andrew. Portugal weren't right at it. Morocco were every bit as disciplined as they were against Spain. And they they capitalized on an opportunity. So, so the interesting thing about Morocco is they can put passing plays together. They can break on you. They can get down the field. We've seen that. But by and large, their finishing is dreadful. Like they, Towards the end of that game, when you know Portugal were in a, in a, in a state where they're, they're kind of trying to overload Morocco and, and desperately searching for, for an equalizer, Morocco had a lot of chances going the other way. I had no faith they were going to score any of them. Um, and, and one of the most crazy performances... Um, uh, from Chideri off the bench, just uh, stunning. Like, comes in, gets himself booked twice, off he goes. Uh, just, he he is chaos. Chaos on the field. Now, it didn't cost him in the end, but it could have. Um, but but Mor- Morocco are good, but the, the good things that they do uh, is mainly stopping you from playing mainly stopping you from creating anything. And the fact that Portugal were just that little bit off it, they got frustrated, and crucially, Fernando Santos didn't keep his head, and he put he, he pulled the Ronaldo trigger far too early um, because Ronaldo did nothing. Like, n- well, he did have a good chance. Uh, he, he, yeah, what and did he do? say he never what? runs. I mean, he, made, he certainly uh, made the run. He, he, he got in between the defenders, and what did he yeah. do? He hit it at, like, Straight at the keeper. Well, it's um, a, t- a difficult angle. Come on, let's let's be a little bit fair. Pepe's chance was the big one that header. Yes, that he will yes. he will absolutely just, That's oh his my. Kane missing the penalty moment. And and it's something that he's good at. You know, he's good at doing that. We we've seen this from him already in the tournament. Um, yeah, just Portugal being that little bit off it. And and uh, the Portugal side of that, JJ, what you mentioned there, them being a little bit off of it, it just goes to show in a tournament like this, every game is a season. There's no correlation from one game to next. No. I mean, Portugal can come out and score six and then get shut out by Morocco in the very next game. Like, there, you cannot... I feel like you just... You're doing yourself a disservice. It makes sense. We all want to look at previous results to try to dictate the future no, outcomes. Can't do but it. you can't do it. No, you can't do it. You're dead right. And also, there's no accounting for Costa coming for that ball and getting nothing. Like, that is the game for me right there. That was the... And I, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm trying not to denigrate like Morocco. I think Morocco have been great. I think Amrabat's been probably my favorite player, the midfielder and captain. I think he's been okay. just stunning for them. And they are capable of good football. Uh, and they are capable of shutting you down. And it's not, um, it's not their right to play open, expansive football and let you beat them. But if Cost is coming for that ball, Andrew, he has to get it. Or just stay at home. Ruben Diaz is there. No, did Ruben Diaz do a great job? Know. No. He well, it was all, it was also hard to account for just the height that El Nesri was going to get on that. Yeah. I, uh, the, the replay in real time, I was like, "Wow, he he got up there." Then they showed the replay. I don't know. Replays can be deceiving, I guess. But on the replay, I was like, "Is he human? Yeah. Who jumps like that?" Yeah, Tr- that's true too. I still think if if Costa stays at home, he can deal with it. The you're right. Commits- I mean, you're right. Costa will that that part of that is on him. But he's a shaky old game. You know me, old glass half full, Andy. <laughs> Uh, yep. I sometimes do like to give credit 
rather than apportion blame. I know that there's there's enough to go around here, credit and blame, but I looked at that goal, I well, said, he, look at the way he rose up. Good for him. I, I cannot sit here and say, look at the big opportunity that England have missed and not say the same about Portugal. Massive. This tournament just opened up for them and they blew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. This, this is a sickener for them. Um, I mean, think of what it would have done. Look, they still would have had a long way to go. Like they would have had to beat France, who mm. at this point I think. But you could see it. It's yeah, sure, it would be possible. But at this point, you'd probably say France are the best team remaining. So that would be that'd be a, a tough bridge for them to cross. But yes, you could see it. And then you know they'll they'll have to get through. Um, obviously, winning the final, uh, which you know never is going to be easy against uh, Argentina or Croatia. We'll see who winds up coming through. So there was still a long way to, for them to go. But just think of the way this era of of. European and global football will be thought of if within like a six-year window Portugal have a European championship and a World Cup to their name. I mean, like they'd be they this era it would almost feel like early 2010 Spain, uh, much different in the way it's played out. Very but, different. <laughs> uh, but like I mean, it, again, results have to matter. And if Portugal had both of those things on their resume in such a short window, I mean, like my God, that goes that goes into the history books right near the front of the line of of great eras that the sport has seen, but instead you're right. Just a, an amazing opportunity missed. Um, and, and I know, you know, he doesn't get a lot of sympathy on this podcast, um, but seeing Ronaldo come off and go down the tunnel in just inconsolable, uh, you I can tell that he, he was, this tournament did not go the way that he had planned. This was, even though that, you know, this has been an era dominated by him and Messi, um, this was always the tournament of Messi. This was always Messi is the sentimental favorite. He's the one we all want to see win. Ronaldo, for whatever reason, some of it his own doing, cast as the villain, you know, removed from the starting 11, kicked off of Manchester United essentially during the course of this tournament, and now has it end in a massive upset against Morocco. I mean, if you talk about great careers, legendary careers ending in a way that are not necessarily befitting of the player and, and the legend that they leave behind. We always talk about Zidane, it ending for him with France on the head, but this with Ronaldo has to go up there as well. Yeah. I mean, he's been the architect of the position he finds himself in. Uh, again, I I, th I think it would have been better to have just waited a little bit longer, stick with your convictions of how this team can play without him in the side, but... Once they went 1-0 down, I guess there was the break glass in case of emergency Ronaldo option, and they, they went straight for it. Um, I mean, he's getting a lot of criticism that he didn't stay out in the field and with with his teammates and, and cheer the Portuguese fans. I get, But that's not that's uh, never that going to be... That bother me. I don't that, know. But it's never going to be who he is anyway. He is all about the self. So um, he only sees this from his, his point of view. And now he's in this bizarre situation where he's literally now an un completely unattached footballer yeah what now what now off I mean, to saudi arabia is that how is that where this goes uh, i mean this might be like i mean him out there that game ending for portugal for most fans depending on where he goes next if it is one of these leagues that is not on the radar really that are just going to give him a, a huge payday that's the final image what you saw yesterday where so so the the Portuguese reporters and uh, newspapers are saying he doesn't want to take the what is it Al Nasser, mm -hmm. whatever they're called, he doesn't want to take their money. 
And it's not about money. And I mean, at this point, it really isn't for him. It can't be. It's just, there's, he's got too much of it. He, he wants to be on a team in the Champions League, but there isn't, there's just not a single team I mean, that wants... What, I mean, what function would he serve? Unless there's a sudden reckoning of his ego, which I don't see coming down the pike, yeah. but that's the only way I see it. If he walks into a room as a completely humbled man and says, look, I understand now where I'm at in my career. I understand that my best role for this team will probably be coming off the bench when we need a goal. Maybe I can pop up in the last 30 minutes and strike for us. I, I can be minutes. that guy. Yeah, I'll give him 30 minutes, JJ. Come on. I'm Jesus, conceding that he's willing to be off the, out of the starting 11. Give me 30 oh, minutes. Oh, God. Andrew, I mean... He, he can is... play 30 minutes, all right? He can play 30 minutes, JJ. He can't. He just can't. But not I'm a, saying not if at he the walked, top If he walked into a room of a team that maybe was struggling to get goals, they got through to the knockout stage of the Champions League... You know, maybe if he walks in as a humbled guy, would a team give him a chance? I don't see it. No. Him walking in as a humbled guy, I don't see it. But <laughs> even, if, even if he did that, I still don't think that a team would be willing to do it just because of, like, like do you want, in the NFL, like, do you want your backup quarterback to be the one making news? Like, it's it's an unnecessary potential distraction to have. Do you want... In Ronaldo, a player to come in, even if he says, I'll come off the bench and be a good soldier. Like, again, like he's going to get asked after every game. The manager is going to get asked after every game, why aren't you starting Ronaldo? Don't you think you should be starting Ronaldo? He, Cristiano, are you mad that you're not starting out there right now? That this player who's far less accomplished, like, however humbled he might be, I feel like we're, we're too far gone now. And teams are just not going to want to deal with that. It's not worth the potential headache. Uh, you're so right. Like, even if you could factor in a way where he can score or contribute in some way, are are the goals worth all those photographers and journalists? I don't think so. Yeah. And there are no goals anymore. That's the other thing. There's none. Yeah. It's the end. So, uh, yeah. A, a fascinating way for um, one of the all-time great careers, one of the maybe three or three greatest careers of all time, potentially, to... Um, as far as the from the mainstream perspective, uh, perhaps has just we've perhaps just seen the end of it. Uh, fascinating um, and a huge missed opportunity, huge missed opportunity for Portugal. We'll, we'll reference Morocco a little bit right at the end of this podcast because I do want to ask you one final question before we close out. But let's move on, JJ, to I guess the biggest shock of the tournament so far, maybe with the exception of Morocco being in the semifinals, but that is Brazil going out in the quarterfinals again. Uh, this time on penalties to Croatia, who have mastered the art of this, it seems. If you get to penalties against Croatia, you are in, you are not where you want to be. Um, and I'm so conflicted about Brazil, and I'm wondering in my head, okay, so were we all wrong? Like, they're out in the quarterfinals again. Were we wrong in, in anointing them as the, the, the Brazilian side? Okay, this is the one who will break through for Brazil for the first time since 2002. They're due, and this side is the one to do it. Were we wrong about them, or was this just one of those, you know, football's a funny game? I I tend to go with the football's a funny game. Me too. I, I agree. And I tend to go with, what was it? Was it Harold McMillan said, uh, but events, dear boy, events. Like... <laughs> You know what a line for you to utter. Something happened in the game, like it, like Brazil did something. So, so they get that that go ahead goal. They finally break through with what well, probably one of the goals of the tournament. Just a 
brilliant one-two slaloming run from from Neymar, and then the strength when you think he's going to lose the ball, the strength to hold off Sosa and round the goalkeeper, and from not a tight angle but an angle, he buries it, roofs it, and there's this explosion of joy. Why did they have seven men, or did they have six men in the attack? And left only, what, like three or four at home and then end up in a position where it ends up as almost a 5v4 and Croatia score? Like, why? I I was reading articles about rest defense in football where a team can can catch their breath and and absorb uh, the flow of a game by going into, especially when they're in the lead, by going into a rest defense. Brazil had no interest in that. And that's that's what caused everything to happen and and fair play to Croatia it was the deflection too you know events yeah. the, it takes it beyond Alisson like that's that's the thing is like I saw Brazil you're right Brazil getting crushed for that for what seemed to be their mindset whether that was coming from Chiche or whether that was just the players out there making a decision on their own I don't know maybe that's been written about and I'm just not sure at this point but like even with that being the case I don't know like events dear boy the 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 massive deflection. I mean, Allison probably has that comfortably saved. And S happens. I yeah, don't know. Like, that's no. not an explanation that anyone wants to hear, but like. S happens. That is the, <laughs> that is, that is wonderful. No, but like, there is, there is both. Like, it's like soccer is two things. There is mm-hmm. decisions that are made and there is things that happen that just happened. The deflection just happened. But also you had six men committed forward when you didn't really need to. You just needed to close out the game. You're right. There's You're also right. there's also you go to the penalties. There's there's a great goalkeeper in, in Livakovic who's having a fantastic tournament. There's also giving a penalty to Marquinhos when he's never taken one before. Never as, taken one in his career. As now Neymar a, as Neymar sits and watches. As Neymar sits and watches. So I immediately think there is no way, and I apologize to all the Neymar stands and Neymar himself. I said, just no way. I was in a group text. There's no way that Chiche did this, that he said, I'm going to have Marquinhos take a penalty, my center half, before I have Neymar. And Neymar is going to be put towards the end. This is the vanity decision of a player who has too much power. And so... Have you have you seen this or are you projecting? Well... That's immediately what I thought. And then okay. I thought, why don't I ask our friend Sergio Patrick, one of football, Brazilian football's journalists and, and a guy who's clued in and reliable before I start making these assumptions. So I text Patrickinho and I say, like right after the game, I just like talk about my timing. Oh my hey God. man, sorry about your loss. And then I said, um, can I ask you a question though? Who was in charge of the penalty order? Was it Chiche or was it, what, did Neymar have a hand in it? And he said, in Brazil, it is always the manager. And Chiche came out and said it and said he wouldn't have done anything different. He said uh, he did defends his decision to place Neymar as fifth penalty taker. It is decisive and the most pressured. Just like you didn't even get to five. No. You've got to have him as either your lead off. I think kick- first, second or third. I think they Some, have to go in the early in the early edge of it. A hundred percent. Like Chiche, there's an arrogance there in banking on goals, like expecting converted penalties. You can't do that. 
And then Marquinhos to be the guy when he's never hit one. Now, his penalty wasn't bad. It just hit the post. That was sickening. That, I mean, like, it was funny. I was in, I was at work when that happened. And, like, you know, you're working in a kind of a quiet space. But you can see, like, everyone's – there's multiple monitors that all have the game on. And all of a sudden – like fortunately, this was a situation where they were fairly aligned. I've talked about the difficulty of of being aligned when people are streaming a game, but it was funny. All of a sudden, in a qu- fairly quiet room, like nine people jumped and screamed at the same time. And I remember after the fact, ha- the other half of the room was terrified, thought something had happened, but it was the reaction that everybody was simultaneously experiencing to Marquinhos's miss. And one of the one of the girls in the room said she jumped up like on her chair almost because she thought the reaction of everyone was that they saw a mouse the way everyone jumped and screamed and ran <laughs> she thought there was a mouse in the in the office it was that kind of reaction because everyone was trying to be like keep it together it's a place of business it's quiet in here right now but um... now marquinhos has never taken a penalty he mi- he missed his casimiro has never taken one and he buried his yeah i mean there's there's but, an element of crapshoot to penalties but even like, still Tiago Silva, who's I taken, I think he's taken three penalties and scored all of them. I mean, he he wasn't stepping forward. There, it did seem a little bit shambolic, like there was no order to this. Yeah. Um, um, the the couple quick things for me before we end on this, um, I get I got to give you credit, JJ. You were you were fairly prescient in uh, in in our interactions as this was happening. You know, this game. A lot of times when we're watching a sporting event, especially one like this, we're we're kind of clinging to a narrative. You know, we're we're hoping that sometimes a game follows a certain script. And a lot of us, whether we're the, whether we're Brazilian fans or not, a lot of us who are neutrals at this point think that like, I don't know, we enjoy Brazil. Like, there's something fun about the way they play, about the history of Brazil. And so within Brazil, then there's Neymar. Like, he's never had his moment in a World Cup. He's, it's kind of been defined by disappointment for him. And so when he comes up and scores that goal in extra time, you think, okay, it's the Brazilian narrative, but it's also, the, it, we're following it to the script. There it is, the defining moment of this player's career. We've been waiting for it. And we just all bore witness to the defining goal of a great career. Wow, I can't believe I saw it. And I, and I texted you straight out. I said, I think we just saw the defining moment of Neymar's career. And you you were on it. You said, we have to wait for the context. If Brazil doesn't w- go on and win this tournament, it means nothing. Mm. Um, not only have they not gone on and won the tournament, they then conceded 10 minutes later and are out in that very same game. And I just wonder, so what do we do now with this Neymar goal? Does it just kind of recede? Like, it's a legendary moment, but... With the way things played out, I think it almost kind of recedes into the ashes of history. Like, you saw him after the game. He's inconsolable. He's in tears because he knows. He knows damn well, just like the rest of us, that this he had his moment taken from him. It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't. I mean, the tears were just, they were so thick, thick droplets of tears streaming down his face, welling up from his eyes. It was... Yeah, that, that's how crying works, JJ. We understand what it looks like. I know, but there's levels of tears. This was you're like, saying these are what are they called? Crocodile tears? Uh, well, no. I mean, I think that would be a rather derisory thing to say. It was. Is it? I thick. thought that's when you just have like huge tears. Oh, is it? Okay. Um, they were enormous. Oh, I don't <laughs> want to mention crocodiles around you. Uh, yeah, yeah, the context is always whether Brazil win out or not. And so we file this goal away with great goals from like, uh, they scored an unbelievable goal, I think, in the 1990 World Cup against Sweden. 
they didn't go anywhere in that competition. You file that away. Uh, they scored an unbelievable goal in 86 in Mexico. A couple of unbelievable goals. You file that away. You do the same with... They're not quite... The 82 team has, in their uh, splendid, spectacular failure, they've remained... Like, some people talk about Brazil as if they won the tournament in 82. They didn't. They were <laughs> knocked out in the semifinal. But that team kind of holds a, a grip. But every, all those other goals are kind of just filed away with, hey, Brazil did this once but didn't win. Um, that's, that's the context. And, and in this tournament, context can switch very, very quickly. So it's always about Brazil winning the tournament out. And, and, and that's the only lens through which you can view, um, view their triumphs and their, their failures. Incredible, incredible disappointment for for this Brazilian side to be out at this phase. And on the other side of it, we should say this is this is spectacular of what we're seeing from Croatia that this run continues now a second straight World Cup um, where they are where they are getting it done. Sometimes by the skin of their teeth, every game is on on a knife's edge. But again, results matter. Results matter. They're, they're winning them. They're a bit. I mean, they're not obviously they're. A more accomplished side than Morocco. They're at a different strata of the game than Morocco, but they do have that thing where how are they getting away with this in terms of not that they're not good defensively, I still think they're midfield. You match their midfield against Brazil's. Accomplishment wise, player wise, it stacks up for me. Um I they shouldn't feel they didn't feel any intimidation. They're just as good in that area. But in attack they're they're not that good, you know? They mm-hmm. Definitely, they don't have a, a, a someone of the prowess of Mandzukic. I mean, I know he scored a nice header, but I, I really feel that they they would have hoped to get more out of uh, Perisic in terms of goals. They haven't. Um, but they're there. They're there. They're, uh, they're just a gritty, gritty side. They've got a lot of steel. Yeah, and their and goalkeeper. Go- I think that's going to be a... Wa- if you think, and we're about to talk about it, Holland yeah. and Argentina was war. I think Croatia and Argentina is potentially going to be war. Yeah, you could be right. Livakovic said about Croatia, we're born, we're, we're raised as fighters. Uh, I think they do. I think that is, that is sort of a, a slogan that this team carries with them in the way they play. And, you know, the other thing that we should say before we move on to the, the, the upcoming war that you referred to Argentina going through. Um, I mean, JJ, Luka Modric, like what a career this is turning out to be for him to, I know he hasn't got the trophies globe internationally to match it, but you know, to see now like multiple world cups advancing, kind of being the leader of a Croatian side that for however great they are, I do think it's fair to say they're punching above their weight. You know, they're, they are upsetting teams that we don't necessarily expect them to upset. I'm not saying that as a way to belittle them quite the opposite. It's to praise them uh, that they fear no one that they just knocked out Brazil, that they enter, you know, time and time again, we see them enter the most stressful moment of a, of any sporting event, penalties and extra time in, in international tournaments, and they find a way to do it. That's, you know, it, at a certain point, it can't just be coincidence when it happens this many times again and again. And Modric just feels like he's at the center of so many of these great moments now for Croatia. What a player. I mean, like, we're talking about Messi, Ronaldo, like those careers, those legacies potentially ending in this World Cup. Modric is another one. We can't take this for granted. This guy is spectacular. He's amazing. And I he's, I cannot, cannot get over uh, just his, 
his running stats. You know, I don't have his running stats in front of me, but they're going to frighten me for a 37-year-old. Like, his, his durability, the way he gets around the field, and I mean, he has the gaunt expression of a man who hasn't stopped running since 2018. But <laughs> he, he's, he, he's unbelievable. Absolutely. It, it's kind of, it, it's amazing to watch. It, it really is. And, and they'll, they'll go again and they'll fancy themselves against Argentina. Oh, it's just they certainly na- will. It's the nature of who they are. They certainly will. And let's go to that one now, the final quarterfinal, JJ, Argentina and the Dutch. We talked the other night on our podcast. We were trying to identify great intercontinental soccer rivalries. Um, you know, and I think, you know, England-Argentina, it was brought up after the fact. I'm disappointed we didn't think of that one in real time because that is that is probably one of the gold standards. But I think this one has now risen up the charts. It was probably high up to begin with. There is all there is history between these two. What we saw take place on Friday between the Dutch and Argentina, this was this was a game that will live on for years to come. The drama of it, the the brawl in the 89th minute. I mean, that was that was spectacular. Van Dyke, Van Dyke uh, giving the, the Don Zimmer treatment to someone, like just barreling into him. All the and benches the af- have emptied. The after the fact stuff of Messi getting in LVG's face. Talking s to somebody in the tunnel Ve- afterwards. It was about Veghorst. Okay, about Veghorst. Veghorst had the most bizarre two minutes. He nods home a goal, right, uh, and then scores the equalizer, and then he clatters into Messi in the middle of the field. That's what annoyed Messi was that Veghorst just hit him like that. Who had that on their bingo card? Vout Veghorst. Yeah. Oh, versus what? Messi. You don't often think of the messy Veghorst rivalry as one of the great rivalries in sports. Brady Manning, you know, <laughs> Federer Nadal, messy Veghorst. Like, <laughs> sure, just rolls off the tongue. This game had everything. This well, had no. everything. Let's let's uh, allow me to contextualize. Oh Christ! The Dutch were they were diarrhea for eighty three minutes. They were so bad. They I I was like, they're gonna do something at some point. And Argentina were 2 nil up, and uh, they should have been home and hosed. But Enzo, uh, Enzo Fernandez and Paredes just, like, they lost their minds in that last 10, 15-minute spell of the game. Like, there was no reason for this to, to go to extra time to end up, you know, the way it did. There was no call for it to end up as penalties. Argentina were in control. They've got to be more disciplined if they're going to make this happen for Messi. They have to be. They can't continue like this. It's absolute insanity. Booting the ball into the dugout. The Dutch come out. It was like, there's a there's a video from, oh, I think it's like 2008. It's a minor league baseball game. And now this is, what the minor league baseball player did is way more dangerous. Like way more dangerous. Mm-hmm. He He's a pitcher and something is said or whatever. And he just nails the ball. Like he goes to throw it at someone. And on the field, he misses and it, it goes into the crowd and clocks someone in the head. Like, And then the next thing, both benches empty as well. And it's a whole mess. It, like there was a real touch of baseball about it, um, about what happened with that, that ball being fired into the Dutch dugout. The Dutch come out. Can we talk about of... it for a sec? Yeah, go on. So like this is a thing that I find one of the great um... – one of the great moments of hypocrisy, not just this one specifically, but in sports in general, um, 
like this this element of confrontation in sports. Uh, I'm going to go on the record right now. I know there's a lot of people out there who will say stuff like, "Oh, you know, this is this is the ugly side of the game. We don't need this. Nah. We don't need this. Get this out of the game." Uh, I am here, JJ, to say I don't. Not all the time, but you give me one of these every once in a while. I am all for it. You mentioned before. I mean, here we are almost 20 years later and the Don Zimmer game, you just referenced it before a baseball game, referencing something that we're bringing up in a world cup. You know why we do that? Cause it's one of the most memorable things we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I am all for drama. Okay. If it enhances the drama, I'm not saying force it, but what we saw, I know people will say it's ugly. We oh, don't want it's... this in our sport. I think that this yes, made for us absolute spectacle and I'm here for it. And everyone else out there who says, no, 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 this isn't what it's about. Yeah, I get it. This isn't That wasn't soccer necessarily, but it created incredible theater. You're going to remember this game the rest of your life. Obviously, stuff happened afterwards that adds to that theater, but this is just an incredible act in an amazing afternoon of soccer. Oh, look, someone, a, a listener described it as um, an abomination. Like it was... Oh. It, Come like the, on. Ball, the, the ball being shot, like the ball didn't hit anyone. It just went into the dugout, right? Um, it hit one of the seats. I loved every bit of that. <laughs> now, partly because what had gone before it was a bit pedestrian, you know, like Argentina in control, Dutch not doing much. So it was nice to see this tension ramp up at the end, but it benefited the Dutch. It did not benefit Argentina. Um, but it was, it was, it, it was glorious. And when you hear commentators going, well, that, that's really what you don't want to see in the game. You don't want to see any of that. No, 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 no. We, we don't have to say that. We've got to say the right things. Yeah, no, I, I really, I, I want to see this because that's I what it's about. I screamed when he kicked that. I said, oh my God, he just it's, did that? It's about drama. It's about theater. It, it's all those things and especially tournament football. Um, I thought the, I thought the, just to talk about the goals, um, because I don't want it, this to get lost. The the no look pass by Messi for Molina for the goal. That was high art. Like you could put that in any museum alongside. Give me anything you want, anything you want. Jackson Pollock, any of that stuff wouldn't get close to this. This was just Messi moving in a different direction, seeing something. I I did not see that, and I'm like, oh my god, he's made it. And the finish was actually pretty good too. Yeah, super goal. Pen the the penalty. Um, I didn't love the penalty call to be honest with you, but it whatever. There's no point debating all the penalties here. Penalty. Messi scores it. What I loved about this game was somewhere sipping on a brandy, maybe even having a cigar, watching Vout Vegors nod one home was Sean Dyche. A game that finishes with Luke de Jong and Vout Veghorst up front is just someone uh, tweeted, you know, we talk about like we all get in a lather and get all like, uh, you know, um, just so juiced up about talking about total football and all this. And like someone tweeted total launch ball. <laughs> it was yeah. like, get it launched. The Dutch get it launched. It was division one. It was league one. It was just boom knock that thing for for the last few minutes and then the subtlety of the free kick goal you tweeted me or texted me you said why don't 
people be more clever with their set pieces? Like, why I'm is it so always... tired of watching guys fire one 30 feet In... over the net time and time again? Give me something different. That was, that was clever. That Incredible. was so clever. The feint, the little slide rule pass, and, and Veghorst got it out of his feet and got it into the net. It, it was a... It was a not as good version of uh, Javier Zanetti's in the 98 World Cup for Argentina against England. But anytime you see those free kicks, you're like, my God. Now, what's interesting is Veghorst did that before, a few years ago when he was at Wolfsburg. That exact same free kick. So this was something that they'd, they'd modeled, that they'd talked about. So, so this is something that they'd worked on. They'd, they'd obviously, Vout Veghorst had said, hey, this is a free kick we did at Wolfsburg. Do you want to try it? And it was, it was magical. And then we go, you know, extra time, blah, blah, blah. Well, real quick, on that, I just want to, before we move off the free kick. So yeah. it's to the point, JJ, where I just became so, like, enraptured in, in what had happened. You know, sometimes I have a, I have a tendency to go too far. So I, yeah. I do need to be reeled back in. And that's part of that's so part of the role that you serve in life, I think, especially in soccer. You reel me back in when I've gone too far. But um, I text on my other group text um, after the England game, because remember, it was almost a carbon copy of what was happening here right at the end. Penal- yeah. a, a foul right on the, kind of the edge of the air, the same sort of area that the Dutch were taking that free kick from. Rashford steps over the ball, and I know he converted a free kick that was brilliant uh, earlier in the tournament, but uh, I sent a group text out to my friends. I said, England learned nothing from the Dutch yesterday. Draw up a play on those set pieces. Uh, and so my buddy said he didn't have a problem with it. He was close. Um, and he said, he said also that, and, and I wonder if this is a good point. If the game ends, like let's say what the Dutch did, we think we saw it work. And so in our brain, we kind of now are of a mindset of like, yeah, do that because it works. <laughs> but like what if that ended where like the pass is a little bit off and for England, the game ends without them even getting anything attempted on net? Like it would be an, an epic failure for an end of a game where you're in a goal scoring position. So, uh, so I guess I, I, in hindsight, okay, you can reel me back in. Maybe I'm going a little too far, but all I know is just like, you know, Rashford, it was close, but I just see guys, they miss them. Like they, they never go in. <laughs> I feel like it like never happens. Uh, and yeah, so I'm just, I'm ready to see something different on set pieces. When the Dutch did it, I, my jaw was on the floor. And now that I've seen it, work in that setting it's all i ever want to see now i don't ever want to see a conventional set piece ever again are you a prisoner of the moment there i get what you're saying it's also the degrees of the failure like if that's if that free if that free kick ends up at veghorst feet and it's saved or he just doesn't get a good connection on it i'm still like that was actually clever that nearly came off Mm-hmm. But if the pass like is completely red and intercepted by the wall or something, then I'm like, oh, what a disaster! So there, it, it's the degrees of the failure that. But but it didn't fail. It worked, and it was it's one of the the iconic moments. What didn't work was uh, was the Dutch penalties. Uh, and again, we're talking about starting penalties. Now I know Gakpo and Memphis were off at that point, and those are two guys that surely would have hit pens. Yeah, and I know he's a good striker of the ball too, but I wouldn't have had Big Verge as the as your as your starting uh, penalty kicker. Knowing how important it is, I don't think I'd have a centre back hitting the first penalty. Uh, that's fair. I mean, you would have a better sense, I guess, than me as to just how capable he is of of hitting he, those. He's a lovely striker of the ball. There's no reason for me to think he can't take a penalty, but. I mean, he wouldn't be regularly taking penalties, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, look, Emmy Martinez is a great keeper. Um, that's what I. That's that's the other note that I hadn't written down. 
So can I ask you this? And, and, and I've, nobody's come up with anything close to this yet. So okay. we might have to go back into antiqu- uh, antiquity or, or at least the 1970s. When is the last time a goalkeeper who has just kind of accepted, not accepted, he was a career backup at Arsenal for eight years. So from 2012 to 2020. Now he went on loan, but he only amassed 15 appearances in eight years for Arsenal. Go on. Become the number one at a at a at a you know a good level with Aston Villa. Be that impressive, and then be the number one for his country as well. After spending the best part of his twenties, I mean, I think he was twenty seven or twenty eight when he moved to Villa. As I, like he's been a backup most of his career. Yeah, I've, that's a that's a good question. I don't think I've ever seen this kind of trajectory. There are goalkeepers like someone say Carlo Cudicini, but. He had a brief period at Chelsea. He was decent. He was good. And then he went to Spurs and like he didn't last long as Spurs number one really at all. Number one. I never I think through injury he became it, but I never viewed him as their number one. No. Um I, I can't think of someone that's had this kind of trajectory. That's been that good. Um yeah, after being a backup for that long, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's unusual. Uh I I I want to think on this. I feel like we're missing someone. But I guess I can't identify who. I'm gonna think I'm, about it. Um, there was a lot of trash talk going on in those penalties as well. A lot of so things being said. That was the last thing I wanted to touch on. Uh, you know, obviously in the end, none of this looks great for Argentina. Messi got in an LVG's face. The the photo now that is just the stuff of legend of Otamendi and I forget who else for Argentina. Just they win on penalties and their immediate reaction is to get in the face of Dutch players yeah. at midfield as they're going to celebrate Messi in the tunnel afterwards, ta- talking Veghorst. to Veghorst. Um, none of it looks great. I do think that there are two sides to this story. I think the Dutch were very vocal. There are videos that I've since seen posted on Twitter of prior to Larturo Martinez going to take his penalty, various Dutch players, as Martinez was making his way towards the spot to take the penalty, various Dutch players following him from the halfway line in yeah. his face, talking to him. Um, you know, I think the Dutch had talked about this game beforehand. Uh, I, I, so I, I know that it doesn't look great for Argentina, but I'm kind of of the opinion right now where I'm not, I'm not going to get on them. I'm not going to be critical of Argentina for, well, I for think what that, right now is not a great look. I'm I'm kind of cool with how it all played out. I think both sides were at it. Um, yeah. I don't want to both be the both sides guy, but that was the case. Yeah, I think that's fair. What a game. What a what a round. The, this quarterfinals delivered. My God, did they deliver. And so before we close out, it was the last thing that, you know, we started to talk about it before we recorded. We started recording. We thought, you know what, let's actually talk about this. So what we're left with now through this quarterfinals, Brazil are out. England are out. Uh, Portugal are out. Now we get Argentina, Croatia, and we get France versus Morocco. You were you were wondering, okay, if I'm Mr. TV executive, how am I feeling about my semifinals right now? Like this was the it's a lot of fun stories have emerged, but when you now look at it on paper, is it like, oh, like that's uh, not this these aren't the names that we were hoping for. No, there's there'll be palpable disappointment in the in the corridors of of. Uh of the marketing people and of the TV execs. For, Especially for sure. because it was all it was all there for them. Yep. Like, like getting Brazil Argentina in a semi. Whew, you know, even, you know, 
I don't know if before the tournament, if Portugal would have been one of the final four that they would have wanted, but seeing the way the Ronaldo story has carried some storylines through the tournament now. But, but you, you can answer that question yourself. Like, Fox, even though, you know, Ronaldo had been dropped, they still came into the to the Portuguese-Morocco game talking about Portugal and Ronaldo facing off. He's still the marquee guy. There's, yeah. no, there's no question. And so they'll be very disappointed in that. There was... There was the chance of a Messi-Ronaldo final, which would have been just in terms of like Adidas and Nike, in terms of the the TV execs and the sponsors, it would have been enormous. That's gone. Brazil being out is a huge problem for, for, for the, these people, the suits that we're talking about. Big, big problem. Um, and like now you've got, let's be honest, like... The American watching audience is, is a big part of this too. So you've got an obscure North African country. Not to me, but to... I get what you're saying. They're not... You know, like I, if you're talking African football, like, you know, there are some that are bigger than others. Nigeria, Cameroon, yeah, but even Ivory Coast. Morocco's not been that. In the last 15 years or so. Yeah, Morocco doesn't necessarily fit the bill as, as one of those nations that we're kind and, of accustomed to. And then you have Croatia for who... Like for for football people, absolutely intrigued by them. We we have no issues about their standing in world football. Sorry, they they're a country of what three and a half million people. Yeah, incredible. They they don't move the the dial. Now it was it was wonderful. New York, uh, sorry Fox, it was went to uh, Astoria, which has a big Croatian population, and they went to these guys who would have been in their like late fifties, sixties, maybe even seventies. And uh, and and guys and girls too as well, like native Croatians, watching the game, crying their eyes out after the Brazil game, like just so joyous and happy, and you know, it means so much to them. I'm not denigrating them. I please, I, I don't want anyone to think, and I'm very happy for 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 Croatian people, Croatian Americans, but it doesn't move the dial in the same way that Brazil would have. Yeah, JJ, I lived in Astoria for eight years. Yeah, I got to say, I, I mean, globally or even around the country, I don't know how many people are, are aware of it. It's a section of Queens. But all I could tell you is my experience there, especially during major soccer tournaments like this, it's the closest thing to being to living in like all parts of the world that you yeah. can get within one yeah. area. Of, it's <laughs> yes. amazing. There, yeah. I mean, there's an enormous Greek population. It's what a story is most known for. But there's a huge Italian population. There's a section of Astoria that's on Steinway that's literally called Little Egypt, a huge Egyptian population, a huge Colombian and Brazilian. I mean, it's unbelievable. All this, that, that place the, is within one small pocket of New York City. And like you get these major soccer tournaments and it's just like no matter who's going to go on and win, you'll have streets closed down. So they're so that portion of the people who live in Astoria can go celebrate it. Like it's if really someone... it's, I'm glad you brought that up. It's, it's having lived there. It was really cool. If someone rang my doorbell right now and said, the world is going to end unless we can find a Serbian man, I'd be like, yes, get an Uber to Astoria. You know, it's that kind <laughs> it's of amazing, place. Yeah. It's yeah. got everyone. It's even got Irish people too. It's it's truly a stunning place. And um, But we are, we're steamrolling now, JJ, towards a Croatia-Morocco final. <laughs> what will the TV imagine? executives be doing then? They might be thrilled. Okay, well, maybe our third place game will actually get some TV ratings this time. They do. They do not want that. Can you uh, imagine? Like, for me, I want that. In uh... in. Let me circle back. 
It's not that I like actively want. I wouldn't that. hate the Argentina France final. <laughs> Can I, we be honest, please? Like I, I get want... it. We don't want to hurt feelings, but come on, man. No, no, I want. You are I so want that football guy. to play out as football should. <laughs> Whoever wins, wins, and that's it. Yeah. Okay. That's. I wouldn't I hate. I would not hate Messi. Up against the defending champs, Dave never Mbappe had a better looking to inherit the title from Messi, his best player on the honor. Like, it's just, oh my God, come on, let's just be real. Oh, the quarterfinals, what what a round it was, JJ. I'm tapped out. We got semis to look forward to Tuesday and Wednesday. Going to be brilliant stuff. I mean, this tournament has just delivered in so many ways. Can't wait for it. We'll of course be all over it. Uh, so keep those feeds refreshed midweek because they'll be coming fast and furious. And then later in the week, we'll get you ready for the final as well. JJ, I got nothing left. How about you? Not a thing. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, everybody. JJ, to you, I say. Look after each other. Take care, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 